them this morning. Um, I understand you had all kinds of tough questions to fire Dr. Horton last week about politics. Uh, but he chose the topic, so it's, uh, it's his fault. And I'm sure we're all, on some level, we'll be happy to have the election behind us. Um, but back to the Heidelberg Catechism, and the best way to begin you know, as a teacher, when you've been gone for a little while, is with a quiz, a surprise pop quiz. Uh, the first question, uh, the questions will get more difficult here as we go along. The first question is, is the easy one. Where exactly were we in, in the Heidelberg Catechism? Um, I, I, I actually missed the last, the last time we had a Sunday school on, uh, on the Heidelberg. So I think we were on Lord's Day 7. Um, I'm not exactly sure where. I'm sure Reverend Brown talked about question 21. Is that, does that seem right? Yeah. So we've done, we've done question 21. All right. We'll, uh, we may review and say one or two things about question 21 as we move to question 22. But good. See, that was the first. That was, a, that was an easy one. That was an A. Uh, the second question, someone put, put a bug in my ear and told me that when you did have Sunday school, that Reverend Brown actually sang. He sang a song, a pop song. So the next quiz question is, what pop song did he sing? See, the questions get more difficult. Apparently, I, I wasn't here, so you have to confirm this. Apparently, he sang the George Michael song about, about, right, okay. Uh, so, all right. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're one for two now at this point. Uh, so we better, we better have a third question just to, to get you into a passing C range. Um, uh, well, if you did question 21, what are the three parts of, of faith? That's a good serious question. The three parts of faith. I see you all looking at your knowledge, agreement, and trust. That's right. Um, did Reverend Brown use the Latin terms? A census, yeah, assent, agreement, assent, um, be, be, be the same thing. A census uh, in Latin, if, if Reverend Brown gave you the Latin terms. And fiducia, that's the, the hearty trust. So if you have the Heidelberg with you, um, I don't know what page it is. I have my own weathered copy of it. I lost the cover a while ago. 14? Four, page 14 in the Psalter Hymnal, question 21. I think the practice is a good one for me to ask the question and then you to, to recite the answer. So everyone find the, the place. We'll read through question 21 um, to continue getting warmed up here. Question 21, what is true faith? Right. So a deep-rooted assurance is what 
as what we have in the Psalter hymnal. The translation that I have, uh, just to give you some, a, a different way of expressing this truth, knowledge is there, holding for true is what another translation says in terms of assent. But then instead of deep-rooted assurance, uh, it, it translates into English, a hearty trust. So that's why we, we, we use that, uh, that phrase fiducia. Um, if you have a fiduciary responsibility, you have a kind of trust, right? Um, a hearty trust, a deep-rooted assurance that, that not only do you know certain things about your sinfulness and about Christ and the gospel, well, you believe they're true, but, but notice the language. You have a personal connection. That's the, that's the nature of the, uh, of, the, of the hearty trust, where it's not only true for other people, knowledge and assent, but it's true for me personally. So it's that, that last aspect of faith that's really so crucial for, for a Reformation understanding of faith. Um, it makes me think we should connect this uh, to the Reformation. Last week we, we celebrated the Reformation anniversary uh, on Monday night. Our kids did by trick-or-treating, sorry to say. Um, I couldn't, I've never been able to convince any of them to dress up as Martin Luther. Um, or any of the other reformers. It's all Darth Vader and stormtroopers. Um, but uh, we celebrate Reformation Day on October 31st, uh, all going all the way back to Luther in 1517. I promise not to turn this into a, a Luther Sunday school. Uh, but 1517, October 31st, that marks the anniversary of, of Luther's attack on the sacrament of penance, which begins the Reformation. But question 21, talking about faith, Luther's discovery of the gospel and his definition of faith that includes these three aspects, uh, that was what the Reformation was about. The, sacrament, uh, the attack on sacrament of penance just began the Reformation. Uh, it's hard actually to date exactly when, when Luther and the other reformers uh, began to define faith uh, according to these three aspects. But, uh, but by the end of the Reformation, we call something like uh, question and answer 21 uh, the material cause of the Reformation, meaning the, the material cause, meaning it's the, it's the stuff of which the Reformation debates were, were, were made. Um, the formal cause was, I heard Brian just whisper it, was, was Scripture alone. Right? So if you think about the solas of the Reformation, uh, well, that's another quiz. Four, we'll have four questions in our quiz this morning. Uh, what are the five solas of the Reformation? Some, grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, um, for God's glory alone, and, and Scripture alone. We learn all these uh, things through Scripture alone. Well, the, the, the Reformation had a kind of formal cause uh, formally, the Reformation was a debate about authority, the authority of Scripture versus the authority of the papacy. Um, and so that's the formal cause, the, the sola scriptura uh, sola. But the stuff of the Reformation, uh, the recovery of the gospel, it's actually faith alone, you may be surprised here. There are some, some connections here to, uh, to our Sunday sermon this morning. Um, there are lots of different Christians, uh, including uh, Roman Catholics, um, there are lots of different folks who will say salvation is by Christ alone. 
Some will even formally with their words say that salvation is by grace alone. But the hinge, the crucial article, is how do you define faith? Do you tinker with the definition of faith? Do you add things to the definition of faith? Like, like Reverend Clark uh, was talking about this morning. And we say no, a knowledge of the things of the gospel, an assent that they're true, and a hearty trust, a deep-rooted assurance. The Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, uh, question 72, 73, uh, helps us with a little elaboration of what we mean by this hearty trust, this third aspect of faith, and, it, and it's so helpful. Um, a, har- a hearty trust is the kind of faith that rests and receives Christ. And that language is, is really important. You know, someday, very soon, um, we'll have a copy of all the confessions that will include the Westminster Standards, the new Psalter hymnal that's going to be coming out within a year, hopefully. It's been approved by our synod and will be published shortly. Um, there will be a copy of not only the three forms of unity, but also the Westminster Standards, which will be really helpful um, because the, to, to look at Westminster Larger Catechism 72 and 73 on faith uh, is a really helpful elaboration of what we find in, in question 21. The important point is faith is, um, even this deep-rooted assurance, is, um, is passive. in that it, it's the kind of aspect of faith where we talk about resting uh, and, and receiving. Which are, which are passive sort of things. It's, it's empty hands that simply receives a gift. Or resting, not being busy, you know, like a duck uh, with her legs under, underwater working, working, working. Um, but, but faith, as we understand it, uh, this hearty trust is, is a resting and receiving. It's a, it's a passive kind of thing. It's also uh, a simple um, instrument, you might say. So one of the things that uh, others who, who um, haven't discovered the Reformation gospel, will do is they try to make faith um, complicated. They make it complex by defining faith as faithfulness or defining faith as a kind of virtue that's, in, that's somehow in your soul, a, a kind of moral a quality that's within you. Um, so they'll make faith not a simple instrument that just rests and receives Christ, but they'll make it complex. Um, and, and that's what the Reformation was fought over. Faith as a passive instrument, as a simple instrument, just resting and receiving. Uh, one more little aspect to it. Faith as um, extra-spective. Meaning, faith looks outside of yourself to Christ. It gains its perspective. It has an object, uh, namely Christ. So extraspective extra means that faith looks outside of yourself um, upon, upon Christ. He's the object of our faith. In fact, 
all of the power that comes from faith comes from the object, not from faith itself. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, working through this word, gives, gives us a hearty trust that these things are true. But the, the hardiness, the vitality of faith, comes from, uh, comes from the object of faith. So faith looks to Christ. It's extrospective. Any other idea or definition of faith that makes it not passive but active, makes it not simple but complex, uh, that's introspective, that looks inside rather than outside to Christ, is, is a complication of the gospel. Uh, and, and going back to the sermon this morning, it means it isn't the gospel. It's, it's some other gospel. That's what the Reformation was about. That's why the definition of faith, the sola fide article, was the material cause um, of the Reformation. So it was, it was really, uh, really important. Going on to question uh, 22 here. Ryan, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, people, uh, I've heard Christians say, well, you know, I, 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 I can't know whether I'm saved or not. And, and, you know, so they don't have any assurance. So how, how can that be true faith? Can, am I being too strict on that to say to them that you don't have true faith unless you have total, complete assurance that you're well, there are times in the Christian life when your when your assurance waxes and wanes. Um, there are ups and downs, but when you think about are you saved, it's usually best not to not to think too much about the assurance question. Just ask yourself: Well, do you believe? Do you look to Christ? And on some kind of immediate level, if you say yes, I, I look to Christ, then then that carries some assurance with it. Um, and that assurance may be small uh, in news, but it, but it has the ability and can, by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, grow. It can be stronger. So we've always believed that on some fundamental level, yeah, there's a deep-rooted assurance. Not, this isn't just true for other people. It's true for me. And I look to Christ. Um, and, and so assurance is, is, is an important aspect a hearty trust. It's, so it's true for me. That well, that's, that's problematic. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's problematic. Now, there are different ways of, of coming to assurance. Later on in the Christian life, you can reflect upon um, ho- hopefully the, the progress you've made in your knowledge and understanding of faith, and, and, and so that can give you a kind of assurance, but that's secondary mm-hmm. to the kind of assurance that comes right with, right with faith itself. Christ is the object of our faith. Yeah. All, all that, um, that we have in salvation comes from, comes from Christ. It's a gift. We, we just rest and, and receive with, with open hands. Um, which is to say, uh, again, going back to the Westminster Larger Catechism, um, faith itself isn't some virtue that God looks at and says, well, you're a miserable person, a, a sinner, but you have this one virtue in you, faith, and so I'll justify you. It's, faith isn't like that. Um, faith is just an instrument that connects us to Christ so that God looks at Christ and says all that he has done applies. That's where your merit is. That's where uh, your obedience is found and, and your forgiveness.
So with a woman who would have 18 years of bleeding and she touched Jesus' garment and he turned around and said, your faith has healed you. So it was her looking to Christ or, or I mean, her faith healed her as, as an instrument. It connected her to Christ. She had a hearty trust that if, if I can just connect to the Savior, then I'll be, then I'll be healed and saved. So, um, yeah, there are places in Scripture where you can find language like that, but, but don't be confused about how faith is being used there. It, it's, it's the thing that connects you to Jesus. Um, and that's a, a way to... Yeah, how are you saved? You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is the instrument that connects you to Christ. So your salvation is all by grace, all because of Christ's work. And, and, but you need, you need Christ who's outside of you. You need some connection to him. And, and faith is that, is that link. That, and how does faith come? God works faith in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. So even, even faith, faith is a gift. Faith isn't, isn't a work that we do. It's a gift from God that he creates in our hearts. Yeah, one more question. Um, when I understood that faith is a gift, um, for me it was a lot easier to, to, to realize and to understand that nothing is my faith is given to me by the Holy Spirit. That makes me able to to reach, because I know he's there. You know, just to go like this, because I don't want to mess with this. I don't want to Sinner, I don't want to reach. But by faith, I know that he's there. Because he's giving me that faith. And through reading the word of God, and coming to hear the sermon, it gives me assurance. And it has made me more passive, more at rest, and able to receive that gift. That's well said. That's well said. I mean, it's a great encouragement in our, in our Christian life um, to know that our salvation doesn't depend depend on the strength of our faith. A, a mustard seed. Um, it is a, it is a goal. It's a prayer of ours to to try to grow in the strength and vitality of faith. There's no uh, there's no benefit to remaining weak in the faith. But if you think, how, how can I obtain pardon from God? How am I saved? Um, well, it doesn't depend on the strength of your, of your faith. It, it depends entirely on Christ. And that's, that's certainly good news. Um, we can circle back for more questions on question 21 um, uh, towards the end. I'll make sure to leave time. Let's press on to question 22 uh, because there's... It's a short little question and answer, but there's, uh, there's a lot happening here, uh, both in the question itself and in terms of the, 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 the catechism itself. So question 22, uh, what is then necessary for a Christian to believe? Everything God promises us in the gospel, that gospel is summarized for us in the articles of our Christian faith, agreed beyond doubt, All right, with question 22 here, we arrive at a transitional moment in, in the catechism. Um, a transition that's 
maybe most interesting to see for ourselves before I put a finer point on it. Let's, uh, let's, let's look through Paul. Let's, we're going to look at a couple of different Bible passages. Let's start in Ephesians. We're going to look at little pairs of Bible verses in, in well, well, we'll keep it to Paul. Um, let's start with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and then we'll move to Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, I think would be a good place. Let me read these two passages, and then we're going to kind of exegete the Bible together. We're going we're gonna to practice reading the Bible together and ask about the definitions of, of words uh, based on context. One word in particular. The word I'm interested in here is faith. How is the word faith being used? We'll find out it has different uses in these two different verses we're going to look at. So uh, Ephesians 1 verses, we'll start with verse 15, 15 and 16 here. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. All right, keep your finger there and then turn to Ephesians 4. Um, I'm particularly interested in verses 4 through 6 here, but let's, for the sake of context, I'll start with verse 1 of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And here's the, the crucial passage here for us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, so let's look at it. We just read verse 5 there and, and, and verse 15 of chapter 1. Both have the word faith in it. Is the word faith being used in the same way? I think they're being used in different ways. What kind of faith is, is Paul talking about in, in verse 15? Belief? Belief, yeah. He has heard of the personal faith of the Ephesians. What kind of faith is being talked about in chapter 4? The content of faith. He's talking about something more objective, right? So uh, theologians make a distinction between objective faith and subjective faith. So objective... My handwriting is terrible. And that's... I apologize for my bad handwriting. <laughs> um, objective faith and subjective faith. Subjective faith is um, personal faith. It's the faith by which you by which you believe. 
Um, objective faith is the content of the faith. Not the faith by which you believe, but the faith that is believed. And here in Heidelberg 21 to 22, we move from question 21, a definition of subjective faith, the faith by which you believe, um, to question 22, the objective contents of faith. Well, what is it that you believe? The faith once for all handed down for the saints. So both of these uh, terms are, are, both these ways of thinking about faith are, are biblical. Um, we can look at another passage here. Uh, how about Colossians? Let's look to Colossians again, the first chapter. Um, Colossians chapter 1, 3 through 6, and then Colossians 2, 6 through 7. So Colossians uh, chapter 1, 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, etc., well, okay, faith in verse 4 here is, once again, what? What kind of faith is this? Objective or subjective faith? Subjective faith. That's right. It, it, towards the end of verse 5, he, he begins to talk about the objective contents of the faith. He calls the word of truth the gospel. Um, but then moving over to, to Colossians 2, 6 through 7, Verse 6, therefore, as you received, there's a good, a good uh, biblical instance of, of faith as a, as a passive um, uh, uh, receiving and resting kind of thing. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, now verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What kind of faith is in view um, here? Objective understanding um, of faith. Uh, maybe just one more. Let's look at, at Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and Philippians 3. We look at all these passages. Uh, one, it's, it's good just to hear different passages of the Word of God on the Lord's Day. And it's also helpful, I think, just to, to try to work together on how to think about the Bible when you're reading it, how to think about what words mean. Don't just see the word faith and assume that every author is always using it the same way, because even in the same book of the Bible, the author can be using the word differently. And so we have to learn to, to read and study uh, the Bible together in this way. Another example would be, I was just thinking about this week, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but, uh, but we have time, uh, the word church. The word church isn't always used the same way in Scripture. Um, when, in Matthew 18, when we think about how to mediate disputes and how to deal with 
uh, having been sinned against, how do you go to your neighbor? And there's a passage, there's a verse that says, having gone to the person individually after they've sinned against you, uh, you try to correct and rebuke them. Well, if they, if they ignore your admonitions, then you bring one or two witnesses with you. And if they ignore again, then what, what does the word say? Tell it, to, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean you know, put it on the blog uh, or, or put it in the church newsletter. Tell, tell everyone who's out there. It means the church there means the elders. Tell it to the elders. Another example would be uh, Acts 15. Who met the Jerusalem council? Who met in Jerusalem? The church. Well, not every Christian in the ancient world, but the elders met in Acts 15. But in the same chapter in Acts, the church sends Paul and Barnabas out. Uh, in fact, they sent Paul and Barnabas to, to Jerusalem. Well, there the church is all the believers in a particular local, local place. Um, enough of the rabbit trail. The word church, in other words, can mean the elders sometimes, uh, the leaders of the church. Sometimes it can mean all the saints in a particular region, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippians or in Philippi. But it can also mean, in a more universal sense, uh, in a Catholic sense, all of the saints um, uh, from from time immemorial. Okay, one more passage here, uh, Philippians one twenty-seven. You guys have already got this nailed. Um, uh, verse. Verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner uh, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What kind of word faith is being used here? Objective, that's right, that's right. How about uh, over chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 11. Well, I'll start reading in verse 7. Um, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So there we have a classic passage, uh, verse 9, what kind of faith is in view? Subjective faith, right. This is talking about the faith that justifies, personal faith, knowledge, assent, and, and a hearty trust uh, and connection to, to the Lord Jesus. So uh, we're probably at risk of uh, you know, belaboring the point here, but there's a, there's a clear biblical distinction then between objective faith and subjective faith. And at this point in the catechism, we're transitioning from one to, to another. This it may seem... Uh, kind of simple stuff, but this is really, really important. Um, I mean, we think about the, the evangelical world that we live in. There is an overwhelming emphasis on what kind of faith? 
right? That's, I imagine, why Reverend Brown sang George Michael to you all. <laughs> and even though you forgot it, I wouldn't let you forget it. <laughs> Brought it back to your memory. An overwhelming emphasis in evangelicalism on a subjective aspect of faith. Um, well, it's so important that faith has objective content. Uh, and so, actually, a lot of the Heidelberg Catechism is given over to thinking about the objective content of faith. Uh, it comes in the form of, uh, of a commentary uh, on, on the Apostles' Creed. The faith that is to be believed is, is also just important. We can't have one without the other. They're, they're both crucial. Um, and, and Paul, from Scripture, we know, uses both uh, in the context of his letters, and, and so it's a, a pattern that we're following and thinking about these things. Uh, okay, so uh, back to question 22. Um, here we, we have the movement, that tr the transition uh, from a subjective definition of faith to an objective definition of faith. We move then into question 23. Uh, what are the articles of the faith? Uh, we don't need to have you recite the Apostles' Creed, we recited it already, and, and it's wonderful to be in a church where we, where we recite the Apostles' Creed every week. That's the kind of thing that these days you can't take for granted, but it's a, a wonderful thing. This is the simplest, uh, clearest summary of the faith objectively revealed, the faith that's, that is to be believed. Once again, um, we're following a biblical pattern here in having these creeds and confessions, uh, for use in, in our church. There are all kinds of uh, biblical creeds and confessions. In fact, we could, we could look at some of them uh, before, we take, before we take questions. Uh, probably the oldest Old Testament creed uh, is in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Uh, that's a little creed. The Lord thy God is one. Uh, just, just a little snippet of one, but that's an, an, an important one. Uh, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission um, is actually a little bit of a, of a creed, uh, the Trinitarian formula to be pronounced in baptism, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's probably the, the foundational New Testament creed. There's that Trinitarian formula uh, that's maintained in, in all non-canonical creeds uh, after that. Maybe another one we could look at. First uh, Timothy. Let's look at First Timothy 3. Uh, must be 15 or 16 here. This, is, this one is a, a, an accessible one because it's indented for us. Not all the little creeds in Scripture themselves are indented, but this one um, is. L let me start reading in chapter 3, verse 14 of First Timothy. Uh, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know uh, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here's our creed. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's very likely this was also essentially a hymn, an early hymn that, that the Christians sang, but it's certainly both. This is, I have to say, a, a pretty remarkable passage. Um, this is in the context here. Paul is talking as well about the authority of Scripture. And here he's already indicating, I'm, I hope to come to you, but in lieu of coming to you right now, I'm going to send you these written words, um, the, the very letter that we're looking at itself. Um, scripture uh, itself is, is authoritative and important. Well, to whom is Scripture given? It's given to the church. The church here is called the household of God, the church of the living God. And what is it? There's a connection here to both Scripture and, and the creed. The church is, is, is a kind of protector, a pillar, a buttress, uh, the place where the truth can be found because uh, the church is, uh, takes its life from Scripture and is founded upon Scripture and protects it. It's, it's a pillar and a buttress. These architectural uh, metaphors are used. Uh, having the Scriptures, the church of the living God confesses what we believe. And so here's this little summary, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Um, maybe one more in Paul, 2, 2 Timothy 2, 10, uh, 10 through 13. Well, this is a short one. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll just look at one more here. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered over to you as of first importance uh, what I also received. The objective content of faith is, is clearly in view here. And here's our, our, little, our little creedal pattern. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And so New Testament scholars suggest that, that because of the, the phrasing of this, Paul is almost certainly quoting uh, a little hymn or confession that was already in use by the church. Um, this this is, is, seems to be a reference uh, to a kind of early version uh, of a creed. And Paul quotes it here, and so it's in Scripture. What's particularly interesting about 1 Corinthians 15, as we uh, get back to the Heidelberg, is this, is this pattern. If you think about the memorable, uh, 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 the, the flow of the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's Christ dead, buried, and, and risen. So here we have uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection 
um, of Christ in an, in an early version um, of the creed. All that to say, the Apostles' Creed is not, as you know, canonical. It is something that arose later, but it has pretty clear reference to early, uh, early creeds that were in, in use in the church. And in fact, the idea of having a creed, having a little, little confession of faith, it follows a biblical pattern from Deuteronomy straight through the New Testament. Um, the church confesses its faith, particularly in, in baptisms, which is why uh, uh, I noted that Matthew 28 is, is so, so important. So what is the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed is not itself Scripture, but it's made up almost entirely of phrases from Scripture. Um, but it is, as I said, the, the clearest, shortest, simplest summary of the objective statement uh, of our faith. Um, it's, it's a pretty magnificent uh, uh, and clear statement. Now, did the apostles write the creed? This is our last quiz question for the day. Why do we call it the Apostles' Creed? What's that? Well, this is a, a controverted Reformation debate. According to Rome, um, the medieval legend was, I mean, if you were a, a medieval Christian, you would have thought the apostles wrote this creed. In fact, the medieval legend was uh, that the 12 disciples each contributed a phrase of the creed. So you can read in a Roman Catholic church historian, Cardinal Baronius, um, he actually lists specifically which disciple gave which portion of the creed. They were kind of sitting around after the Great Commission, um, deciding game plan, who's going to go where, right? And, and, and Peter says, well, I believe God the Father Almighty. And then the next disciple contributes a little phrase. So that, that was... That was the medieval legend in place from the 5th or 6th century all the way up until the time of the Reformation when the Reformers said, no, by calling this the Apostles' Creed, we don't mean that the apostles or the disciples themselves authored this creed. We call it the Apostles' Creed because its content is apostolic. Because it is a summary of apostolic teaching. It's not that, that they wrote it themselves. It is, however, a kind of synthesis document. It synthesizes uh, a number of different Western creeds that go back to at least the second century. Um, I could bring a few of these with you uh, for, for I could bring a few of these with me for, for next week. But there's a little creed by uh, by Tertullian in the third century, uh, part of a, a baptismal creed uh, that has phrases from the Apostles' Creed that are, that it's, how we ha it's why we have the Apostles' Creed the way we do. It's because part of it is, is taken over from Tertullian. Now, Tertullian, it's pretty clear, didn't invent this creed himself. He's, he's quoting something that was already in use in the church. There's another church uh, father, Hippolytus uh, of Rome in the 3rd or 4th century, um, who has an ordination uh, liturgy that has the vast majority of what we think of as the Apostles' Creed is there in, in Hippolytus as well. Um, the Apostles' Creed, in the earliest, almost complete edition of the Apostles' Creed that we have is, is from the 5th or 6th century from uh, a man named uh, Rufinus. 
Um, and, and so it's, it's an old creed, uh, but the earliest sort of full version of it that we have in existence is from the 5th or 6th uh, century, quoting and making allusions to and synthesizing earlier creeds from the, from the 2nd and 3rd. So it's worth spending uh, a fair amount of time. This is an old, an old creed. It doesn't have its authority because of its antiquity. It has its authority because of its summary, uh, because it's a summary of apostolic teaching. But if, if there are any um, math numbers people here uh, among us, uh, let's think very quickly in conclusion here about the three parts of the catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The guilt section, questions 3 to 11. The grace sections, questions 12 to what? 85. The, the gratitude section then, question 86 to 129. Well, the Apostles' Creed can be found in the grace section. The first part of the grace section, 12 to, what is it, 20, uh, essentially 12 to, to, to 21, 20, um, deals with the mediator and faith. So after guilt and the law, we get who is Jesus and what does subjective personal faith in him mean. But then from question 23, all the way to 58, we have an exposition of the Apostles' Creed, sort of line by line. Um, I'm not very quick with math, but I looked this up once upon a time. There are 35 questions on the Apostles' Creed, which means it's basically 27, 28%. Um, some of you are probably quicker with numbers, but almost 30% of the Heidelberg Catechism is an exposition of the objective understanding of the Christian faith. Um, that's a lot. That's the biggest uh, thematic chunk of the Heidelberg Catechism, is a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. There are two other big chunks. Um, who knows what they are? There's the Decalogue, and a commentary on the Decalogue, and then a commentary on, on the Lord's Prayer. Those are the three big chunks of the Heidelberg Catechism, Apostles' Creed, the Decalogue, and the Lord's Prayer. So starting next week, we'll, we'll dive into the Creed itself. Um, I'll try to bring with me a few of the pre, uh, precursors to the Apostles' Creed. Um, but, uh, but today was our hopefully a, an introduction to uh, the objective statement uh, of the faith. I don't think, I'm sorry, I meant to leave time for questions, and, and I, I kind of blew it. Time management, clock management has never been a, uh, a strength of mine. In fact, one time in high school basketball, uh, you know, I'd only played at the very end of the game. <laughs> Usually we were up by a lot uh, or down by so much, it really didn't matter. Um, and, and at one point, fa very famously on video, uh, I took a half-court shot thinking that it was the buzzer shot and, and shot it and it fell way short and there were still three seconds left uh, on the clock. It was embarrassing. So clock management has never been uh, a strength of mine. Um, I, I, I didn't want to pass it. I wanted to take the last second shot. So, <laughs> and I, I had to heave it up. Um, never mind. Um, let's let's uh, not end with a basketball story, but let's, let's end in prayer. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, oh Lord God, we, we extol uh, your name, we give you thanks uh, and praise for uh, 
the as we read in uh, in Paul this morning for the immeasurable greatness of your power uh, towards us who believe. Be at work in us, we pray by your Holy Spirit to create and strengthen uh, that faith by which we believe, that personal faith, um, for we have uh, Christ as its object, um, our treasure. Uh, all the hope we have comes, comes from him. Help us also, Father, to, uh, to be attentive to your word, uh, to your word as it's proclaimed mightily um, from the pulpit, and from your word as we, uh, as we learn about it together and as we read it, uh, for ourselves, help us to grow uh, and increase in our knowledge uh, and insight uh, of the faith uh, objectively revealed, the, the faith once for all handed down for the saints. Um, build us up in it and help us as a church to, uh, to be a, a pillar and a buttress uh, for the truth. Uh, this all we know comes uh, to us uh, by your grace uh, in and through Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Uh, amen.